analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Welcome to the Woodford Show. A lot to discuss today, including the end of an era at the Kamloops Symphony, an assessment from Interior Health on those two mobile supervised consumption sites in Kamloops and Kelowna, and the latest on the Trump-Russia investigation. But first, yesterday, an absolute bombshell report landing in the controversy gripping the legislature, detailing allegations around some really outlandish spending activity and questionable behaviors from the currently suspended clerk Craig James and Sergeant-at-Arms Gary Lenz. Joining me now to discuss is the opposition house leader mary polak mary welcome good morning how are you doing oh you know what it is not snowing here in langley <laughs> <laughs> yes well I'm, I'm assuming you're dealing with the storm of another kind at the moment so yeah. uh, mary first off your reaction i mean this we've talked to you about this before this has been a bit of an ongoing controversy over the last few months uh the details around all of these allegations outlaid in the report uh, tabled by the speaker daryl plekis yesterday was yesterday the first time you'd seen them in this kind of detail and scope or did you have some kind of knowledge prior to that uh, we were uh, on a confidential basis provided with the report ahead of the, a few days ahead of the meeting uh, but that was the first time that we had seen any of this. And, of course, as you mentioned, uh, we've been asking for this uh, for quite some time. So I'm glad that uh, it's finally out, it's finally public, and uh, people can have a look at what the concerns are. What's your concern level? Oh, gosh. Uh, if these allegations are true, it means that we've got a whole culture at the legislature that we need to deal with. Um, yesterday at the committee, uh, another action that we took was uh, to vote to have an audit launched on all of the financial dealings at the legislature. And uh, I hope that will shed even more light on things. But, but again, it's something that we've been pushing for um, since this uh, first started to unfold. Uh, I'm just glad we're finally at that point. So the audit itself, what, give me an idea of the scope. Obviously, I mean, there's some immediate concerns there. I think we can all agree on that. But does it go back years? I mean, give me an idea of sort of its breadth and scope here. Well, the terms of reference uh, are yet to be determined, and that is one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Uh, how far back should this go? We'll do that in part um, in consultation with the auditor who is ultimately hired to do this uh, and design it in such a way that we can get to the bottom of what's going on. Uh, because if these kinds of things are true and if they've been going on for some time, uh, we need to address that. We need to ensure we've got the policies in place uh, to stop it from happening. I mean, we thought we had uh, got there in 2012. We revamped entirely the way in which the legislative legislature functions financially, uh, and we thought we had the administrative oversight in place to ensure that these things couldn't happen. If these allegations are true, then then clearly we have not yet done our job. Okay, so that brings an interesting question into play. I know from a journalist side of things that the legislature itself and the office of the speaker are sort of immune from freedom of information requests. There's a certain level of transparency that's simply not there as there would be for, a, say, Ministry of the Environment, Ministry of Transportation, etc. Is it time to open up the legislature side of things and have more transparency to provide uh, some more level of oversight from, from the public and from the world of journalism? Well, clearly the answer is yes. Um, I, I will commend the acting clerk who uh, almost immediately upon taking the position uh, decided to proactively release from here on out uh, any and all records around expenses uh, and travel expenses that are incurred uh, on behalf of executive at that level. So that's a start. 
the audit will recommend, I'm sure, other areas where we can be more transparent. We've done that uh, over the years. It's improved. Um, you know, it used to be that you didn't get any information about the expenses of MLAs except for the overall amount. Now all of those receipts are published online. You can see every little thing uh, that we spend money on and claim on a day-to-day basis. Same thing with our constituency offices. Uh, so the transparency is improved, uh, but if this report holds true, um, there's still a lot more we need to do. The public needs to be able to know where their money is being spent. There's never an excuse for keeping that secret. Okay. Uh, you you've keep mentioning a term throughout the interview, if it proves to be true. So why don't we dive into that? There are a lot of explosive allegations in this thing, a tawdry list of spending misbehaviors and, and other things. And the question that I have at the end of this, is this going to be something that you know, or does any of this result in, in some kind of criminal charge? I know you can't answer it and I can't answer it. That's, that's a jurisdiction for the police. But at the end of the day, if there's no criminality here, will there be some troubling repercussions on taxpayers further? I mean, does, does the way Craig James and Gary Lenz, uh, well, the way they were treated, uh, if there's no criminal charges at the end of this road, do we risk a lawsuit? That kind of thing. So there's still, still sort of pros, procedural questions and, as we kind of forge through to determine what this all means. Yeah, and it's unfortunate the way that this unfolded. I mean, I I think, first of all, the action that the legislature took in terms of suspending these individuals with pay, uh, there was no other choice. Once you're faced with uh, folks who are under investigation by the police and there are special prosecutors appointed, uh, there's no way that their positions are tenable. Uh, you, You can't continue them in their role. Um, but I do think activities like marching them out of the legislature uh, in such a spectacle, I, I don't think that was appropriate. I don't think that was called for. Um, so there are issues, I'm sure, that will arise. Um, I think what's important uh, to note here is that yesterday, along with the various actions we took at the committee, one of them was to invite the individuals to provide a written response to the Speaker's report and to give that to us by February 1st so that the three House leaders can consider that uh, and make any recommendations to the legislature that we think is appropriate. What's the timeline for assessing their sort of status? I mean, obviously you need to figure some things out here, but at what point do you revisit this decision and uh, possibly move to, say, termination as opposed to suspension, or how long can they remain on suspension? Well, uh, there's no end limit to how long they can remain uh, in the status they are now, which is uh, suspended with pay. Uh, The soonest that any action could be taken would be when the legislature sits, uh, because it's the legislature itself uh, that has the decision-making over their employment status. So that's the soonest. Uh, But we, as House leaders, will have to take a look at what information we get, and we're the ones who are going to have to make a decision as to uh, what we recommend to the legislature. Okay. Uh, Mr. Plekis himself, you've been extremely critical, uh, as have your colleagues and, and many others, about his behaviors up until now. In your mind, is this report an exoneration of Mr. Plekis and his role as Speaker, or do you still have lingering questions about his behavior? Well, I, you know, I think there's a straw man been set up here. Um, if you look at uh, how we have behaved, uh, conducted ourselves as opposition uh, since this all came to light, Uh, We've done nothing but ask for disclosure. Um, You know, we haven't discounted what the Speaker has said. We've simply asked him to provide the information. He has now, which is great. Uh, But there are more questions. I mean, for example, uh, the Speaker, according to his own report, 
has harbored these concerns for many, many months, going back to the beginning of his speakership a couple of years ago. Um, in all that time, uh, it makes no sense to me that he would have continued to sign off on expenses and not bring any of this to the awareness of the committee that's responsible for overseeing it all. Um, so there are still questions remaining, um, and that's maybe one of the biggest. The Auditor General signs off on the legislature's expenses on an annual basis. I don't know the intricacies of how these expenses were sort of constructed. Um, is there concerns there that these slip by not only oversight within the building, but also oversight provincially from the own Auditor General's office? Well, I, the Auditor General's role and what the Auditor General's office looks at when they sign off uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, uncover this kind of activity, especially given that it appears most of it, if not all, was signed off at the time by those who were in charge of supervising the expenses. Uh, so uh, I, I, we will know more answers to that when the audit is conducted. Uh, but on the face of it, it doesn't necessarily implicate the Auditor General. Okay. Is that a problem if we have past speakers signing off on, on these behaviors? Does it impact sort of the, if any potential criminality? I, you know, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that we will hopefully uncover with respect to an audit. Um, and I, I would expect that any audit of that nature would make recommendations to us insofar as our policies at the legislature to make sure that we strengthen uh, the oversight. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter to the public why it happens. The public wants to know uh, how we can assure them that it's not going to happen again. <laughs> and this may seem like a silly question, but why is there that much booze sitting in the Speaker's office? <laughs> Well, good question. I, I don't know. I've never been Speaker. Uh, I've not been known to uh, hang out in the Speaker's office. Uh, but again, you know, there's an example where if, uh, if the Speaker was concerned, um, why not mention that? Why not come to a meeting and say, I'm appalled and shocked that this is taking place and I don't want this in my office? <laughs> Maybe we should issue it a liquor license. Okay, uh, lots of lingering questions here, Mary. I'm sure you and I will be discussing this in, in the weeks and months to come, but uh, a very, very interesting turn of events, and as you mentioned, your concern level is pretty sky high at this point. Absolutely. All right. Opposition House Leader Mary Polak, thank you for taking a few minutes to join us this morning. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. And we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show. On the other side, it's the end of an era for the Kamloops Symphony. We'll dive into that after this. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. All right, welcome back to the Woodford Show. Sorry for the pause there. We had to fix a microphone issue. <laughs> uh, welcome in studio, my guest this morning, and end of an era I mentioned at Kamloops Symphony Orchestra. Uh, and we have the executive director, the soon-to-be-retired executive director, Kathy Humphreys. Kathy, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Thanks. Okay, so uh, you and I were talking a little bit off the air, but uh, how are you feeling? I mean, it's one thing to make the decision, and all of a sudden, once you make it, it's kind of in concrete at that point. How you, How's your comfort level? I'm, uh, I'm uh, having ups and downs about it you know i'm one day i'm saying hey look at all the things i can do all the freedom i'm going to have and and the next day i'm thinking what am i going to do with myself right. <laughs> you know i need to be busy so 
Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. New yeah. adventure. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the the sort of arc of your time at the Kamloops Symphony. I mean, you, what, 1990, I believe you began? Yeah. So what were they then compared to what they are now? How have you seen them grow under your tenure? Oh, goodness. It, the orchestra was... Um, uh, community orchestra mainly, with a few professional musicians that uh, sort of led the various sections in the orchestra. Mm. I think that we were doing at that point about five concerts a year, something like that. And uh, it was a very small budget. And, um, you know, I think things were a little bit on the amateur side, you might say, in terms of, you know, like our <laughs> advertising material and things right. like that. And of course, in that era, everything that we did was so different than it is now. It was um, a time when you didn't have a photocopier that could do all the things they do now. You, I used to have to take actual photographs of guest artists around and drop them off at the newspapers to be <laughs> scanned and things like that because because you couldn't email anything. Right. There was no email. So, you know, that kind of thing has changed drastically. Um, the organization has grown. Um, in 2002, we added the Kamloops Symphony Music School. And then as that started to grow, we moved into our new premises in Station Plaza a few years, about five years later. Um, did a major renovation there in 2012. Um, and I think it was about... 2008, 2009, we started our concert series in Salmon Arm. So we go there three times a year, and that's well established now with a lot of support in that community. Um, the orchestra has improved artistically to an incredible extent. It's yeah. just not the or same sound that it was before. They can do so many more things and with so much more um, skill and um, beauty than they could before. And uh, then the last couple of years have been a whirlwind of uh, the change in the music director position. So that was a big project um, after the long tenure of Bruce Dunn yeah. to uh, find someone. And we, we found a, a wonderful person to be our music director, Dina Gilbert. And it's been great working for her with her for the last year and a half or so. Um, and uh, now, of course, on the horizon, we have the Performing Arts Centre uh, project that is something that I've been behind the scenes trying to work on and, and prepare for over the years. Yeah. And that's a huge one. And, and that's one of the small things that's really, you know, <laughs> kind of getting me is that I, I really, really would like to, to work on that project. And I think, you know, I'll be doing that for the next few months. Yeah. And then uh, when I when I'm not working for the orchestra anymore, I'm still going to be a strong supporter of the arts in our community, and I'm, you know, very much going to do what I can as a volunteer on that project. So, I, you know, it won't be like I'm not involved. I guess yeah. it'll just be a different kind of involvement. Uh, How important is that project for the future of the Calvin Symphony? I mean, you've obviously taken it from one place and elevated it to another, but will this provide a further evolution to the symphony itself if if this project is built? It certainly will. For years now, everyone that works in the arts in our community has known that we are short of venues. And even with this new um, center, it's possible that we'll still be a bit short on venues. There's so much activity going on. Yeah. So, for instance, it, with us, the Kamloops Symphony, we have now 10 programs a year. And um, about half of them are repeated twice in Kamloops and then maybe another time in, in Salmon Arm. So it's, it's much more performances. But we are now stalled pretty much where we are because there are no extra dates available in Sagebrush Theatre and there's no other venue for an orchestra to perform in. So oh, okay. um, any new thing that we might want to do is not going to be possible um, until there's another another space. And that's been the case now for, I would say, hmm, 10, 15 years or so. 
and uh, there's no movement, nothing's happening, or there hasn't been, um, to relieve that pressure on that one building. So uh, I think this will open up a lot of new opportunities for not only the Kamloops Symphony, of course, we're a small part of that, um, but the other arts organizations, um, the smaller theatre companies, hopefully the choirs, and, you know, all of, all of the activity that's going on here will be much better positioned to grow and develop, and as the city is growing and developing right. quite rapidly right now. It so totally it's, it's, it's very exciting times in Kamloops, I think, and it's, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. How, part, how, much, how crucial is it in that evolution? to find someone of quality or stature to replace you because they're going to be in charge of now shepherding the symphony into whatever it becomes next um well i mean obviously i hope the board is able to find someone that um has the background and skills to do what i do i mean i didn't when i started mm. but of course you know starting with a small organization you can learn as you go along but coming in now with a over a million dollar professional orchestra to uh, and a music school to run. Um, you need a certain skill set that uh, not everyone has. And in the orchestra world, I don't think people realize how few of us there are in the professional orchestras. So Orchestras Canada, the national organization that we belong to, has some, I don't know, it's probably in the neighborhood of about 80 members across wow. the whole country. Uh, that's not very many. So, you know, the world of orchestra administration is quite small. And, uh, you know, but I, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who have experience, you know, maybe with a larger orchestra in a, in a um, smaller role that would be looking to make a career, you know, move into the executive director position and, and take this organization to the next level. I, you know, I'm sure there's someone there that's going to be able to do that. And I'm definitely prepared to spend as much time as I need to, you know, providing all the information that I can and making the introductions and helping that person, um, you know, move into the role with a smooth transition. So, yeah, yeah. it's going to be fun. What, uh, what are you going to do next? I know often, you know, when you do these things, this has been your life. You've yeah. invested a large part of yourself in yeah. this. I yeah. imagine it must be tough to just be like, okay, I'm going to let go. Yeah, I'll just let go of this. How do you feel that, this, that hole in your life? This right? thing that's, yeah, it's my, <laughs> it's my baby, this one. Uh, yeah. Um, it's, it is hard, you know, and like I said, I've, I've got my, my bad days and my good days when it comes to thinking about how that's going right. to look, yeah. but I have been looking forward to um, doing some traveling, as many people do, and thinking that, you know, now's a good time to do that because I still, you know, I'm in pretty good health and I'm not, you know... Too elderly yet, so I think I can still manage some some interesting travel. And um, I have a family that are uh, you know always saying, you know, you work too hard. You need to spend more time with us. So I'm going to be doing that, and I'm sure I'll be doing some volunteer work in the community and um, be taking in more of the um, arts uh, presentations that go on here that I don't have time to do because I'm. My work has been so consuming. So I, you know, I, I think it's it's going to be great. You know, I'm going to be going to those um, film society movies that I really love to go to. But, you know, quite often it's just another night out is not yeah. for me today. Yeah. But, you know, I think I think that those kinds of things are, are um, in the future for me. And I know people are always telling me that, well, it's hard to do it. You know, it's hard to let go. It's hard to move on. It's, it's hard to uh, know what you're going to do with yourself. That once it happens, you know, it'll take a little while to get used to it and then a whole yeah, new world it's of... a bit of a transition, of, I'm um, told. Yeah, I yeah. think a whole new world opens up and and uh, you have an opportunity to do something new and different yeah. every day. Well, um, unfortunately we're out of time, but uh, number one, my thanks to you for taking a few moments to come in and, and chat with us today. And, and number two, just a big congratulations. You've been, uh, you've been a, a founding member of, of something that has been a seminal building block 
in our community, especially in the arts community. And I think uh, uh, you have every reason to be proud of your contribution to, to this city and oh, to what you've done you. over there. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Excellent. Okay, uh, still some time left. You're not going to retire until June 30th, so don't oh, celebrate just yet. I'm not so. leaving town. <laughs> I'll still be here. There we go. The uh, soon-to-be-retired executive director of the Kamloops Symphony, uh, Kathy Humphreys. Uh, again, congratulations. We'll take a quick break here on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk to Interior Health as they assess the two uh, supervised consumption sites here in Kamloops. Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Woodford Show, turning our attention to the overdose epidemic front. Welcome to the show from Interior Health Authority, Dr. Sylvina Memma. Good morning, Sylvina. Good morning. Okay, so uh, the two overdose prevention site areas here in Kamloops, as well as a similar setup uh, mobile site in Kelowna. You guys have now taken a hard look at uh, the period that those two sites have been active and operating in both of these cities, Kelowna and Kamloops, to kind of get an understanding of what's working and, I guess, what's not working. So, I guess, first question first is, uh, what did you find out? This is a feasible model. It works. Um, but that said, there were a few lessons learned, and that's why we called the paper Mobile Supervised Consumption Services in Rural British Columbia, Lessons Learned, because there are a few things that we learned. And in those you know, lessons learned include the space is limited, the demand was very high, and envisioned that the demand was going to be that high. So those are some of the things we learned um, out of these um, you know, projects. Was there anything that was sort of uh, unique to, to each of the communities? Was there something that was working or wasn't working that was sort of specific to Kamloops or specific to Kelowna that caught you guys by surprise, or, or was it both, both more or less the same? So Kamloops, um, you know, the, the number of people that were accessing services was um, way higher in Kelowna than in Kamloops. And the reason for that is that the mobile supervised consumption service in Kamloops, one of the stops is behind Ask Wellness. And Ask Wellness is an agency that provides harm reduction services to, to this same population. So in a sense, it's, it's, that's a great synergy between Ask Wellness and the mobile because there is clients that will come to, to access services and they will go to Ask Wellness, say if they need supplies, right, or if they need to talk to somebody. Ask Wellness already provides that service. So that reduces the demand on the mobile while in Kamlu, in Kelowna, sorry, everybody was going to the mobile to access service, and that made the service very busy. Kelowna has seen four times the number of people that Kamloops has on the mobile, um, and and that is a problem because if you imagine, you know, it's a, it's an RV, it's a retrofitted vehicle that is not meant to have hundreds of people coming in and out every day, right? Um, so really, the, the 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 number of people that accessed uh, services in Kamloops was way less, and that's because Ask Wellness was able to absorb, um, you know, the demand for 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 these clients. That's interesting. So the, the the I know they're sort of in here in Kamloops, they're they're chained to the two Ask Wellness locations. Essentially, they don't go the the mobile site doesn't go anywhere else. But uh, you viewed that as as complementary. They helped each other out as opposed to looking at it and saying, "Hey, maybe we should put the put the mobile site in a different location to get more more bodies in there." Exactly. Ask Wellness. Uh, you know, just to be clear, uh, there is no supervised consumption on Ask Wellness. The mobiles were are meant to provide that service. 
but we we want people who go to the mobile to be uh, accessing that particular service to be to have a, a space where they can inject safely and have conversations with a nurse about referrals and that type of thing we don't want uh, you know the, the service wasn't intended for for people to go to the mobile to ask for um, you know a needle exchange or, or for other supplies that is a function of a harm reduction agency uh, and, and that is supplied by by ask wellness I know in the initial uh, setting up of that, that service here in Kamloops, there was some changes to its hours of operation. On that side, it was were those changes successful, or is that something that still needs some tweaking as far as the sort of latest look at things? Well, the hours of operation was something that we learned quickly, that uh, users wanted to have extended hours. And, and on that, you know, based on that feedback, the, the hours of operations were uh, changed in Kamloops and Kelowna for to accommodate the demand so that was that was something that was um you know uh, early on uh, corrected to to be able to provide the best service to to clients all right and as far as um you know there was some initial concerns if i remember correctly about uh from some naysayers saying okay listen this is going to cause an increase in crime or perhaps maybe there's the safety of staff or that kind of thing um now that we've seen this thing on the ground for an extended period of time uh, any of those sort of initial concerns play out or or those fears were found not to or those fears were were, were not founded in, in any kind of fact well there have been ongoing concerns um you know we've uh, not 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 just because of the mobile, but you know, with issues with um, you know um, open drug use or needles being found on on public spaces, that is an ongoing concern. Now, what what you know, what we need to understand is that this mobile, the supervised consumption, and really the drug use in general is not going to be solved with just one intervention, right? This is a, a community effort, and that's why we now have the community action team, which involves, you know, people from, from a variety of different sectors. This is not, you know, just a health issue or a RCMP issue or a bylaw issue. It's all of these people working together to pull off a service that will work. So that's really the next step here, um, and that's really where the efforts are, are turning in BC to to address you know the community aspect of, of drug use to reduce stigma and to be able to together um, come come you know with an initiative that will work for everybody. So um, the mobile alone will not tackle the issue of uh, you know the discarded needles or that. There is you know other other efforts that are around the mobile to to make it you know a successful project to make it work. And as well, I know that one of the upsides to it, or at least this is the way it was pitched, was that it not only would treat addicts, uh, provide healthcare staff there in the event of an overdose, save some lives, that kind of thing, but also provide another point of contact between sort of the addicted population and healthcare services to possibly build some bridges, make some relationships, and, you know, not have uh, or provide an avenue or a doorway for people who could possibly go and be uh, fed into other services or other lines to help to get them out of their lifestyle. Did you guys take a look at that or sort of quantify its impacts that way yes referrals we did look at the number of referrals that were made from the mobiles to health services because as you say people come inside and and they have a, a substance uh, use problem and the idea is to move them along the continuum so that they can access help and treatment and hopefully um you know stop using at some point right um so that's 
treatment uh, continuum, that pathway um, is works better if there is a relationship being built with staff at the supervised consumption service. So, you know, the workers will develop, will, will establish a relationship with the clients and then be able to determine what is that they need and, and be able to triage them into the resources that they would um, that they would need. Now, this referral process um, was successful. However, one input, one feedback that we got from staff and also from clients at the mobile was that the space being so confined and limited didn't allow to develop, um, you know, in, in many instances, um, you know, to develop these, uh, you know, deep conversations because of privacy issues, right? And because there is other people waiting with only two booths to inject, there were there is a lineup and there is people waiting, and we have to move people quickly. Um, so, having more space, like having a place where people can have private conversations, would go a long way into moving people along the continuum that I was just mentioning. Yeah, no, fair enough. Okay, uh, I guess my last question here is: you guys have done this this deep dive into the numbers and gotten a sense of uh, what's working, what's not working. Uh, obviously, these two services are going to continue in both Kelowna and Kamloops. So, um, will there be any tweaks or changes in the weeks or months ahead as you kind of now say, okay, we've examined this information. Now, what does this mean going forward? Right. In the immediate future, uh, you know, there is not going to be any changes like in the next, you know, um, months or, or so. Um, but Interior Health is looking at this data and thinking about how can we enhance this service to make it more meaningful for clients and for providers. So I, I you know, we don't have any, any anything to share in terms of news now, but I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, in the coming months, uh, changes be announced. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat. Uh, and I get, it's worth noting that uh, I can only imagine if it wasn't for naloxone or these supervised injection sites or these overdose prevention sites, uh, how much larger the death toll would be in this awful epidemic that, uh, that we're they're still currently enduring around the province. Yeah, absolutely. I think these services have saved lives and they're, uh, you know, meaningfully connecting people to other services. So it's, it's been a success as far as we are concerned. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Silvita Mema, thanks so much for taking some time. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Silvita Mema from the Interior Health Authority. We're going to take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll turn our attention south of the border to the Trump-Russia investigation. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome. Always a pleasure to touch base with Jeffrey Myers, who's a lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University. He knows a thing or two about constitutional law on both sides of the border. Jeffrey, how are you? Good to be with you, Shane. I'm well. Good. Let's jump into the, the meaty sort of turn of events in the last few days, and that was uh, BuzzFeed came out with a story uh, alleging that uh, from Michael Cohen and through some sources alleging that Trump uh, ordered Michael Cohen to cover up the Trump Tower deal in Russia, uh, which has some uh, interesting implications. But uh, maybe even more fascinating out of that, the uh, the office of the special uh, counsel, Robert Mueller, who has been, I think, unbelievably quiet. He's managed to keep a lid on what he's doing to an extent I just think is extremely rare these days. But 
but his office came out with a rare rebuttal basically saying that the facts of that are are not correct but not really saying what facts or in kind of specifically what they got wrong which is then kind of turned into a whole other murky something else so uh, before we delve into the BuzzFeed details and w- what that might mean I'm just kind of curious what you think of this back and forth between uh, BuzzFeed itself and this sort of rare rebuttal from the Mueller office well, I mean, I think that the BuzzFeed article, if it was true, and and, and I I I um, linked to a tweet from on my Twitter account to, to Eric Holder, who's the former uh, Attorney General under Barack Obama, and a couple other um, scholars and observers, basically saying again with the and I'm I'm looking back on this and I'm relieved that I didn't say anything other than if this is true, it's a significant game changer because it would mean that, that the direct sort of evidence that Mr. Trump had sort of it, it basically directed Congress to be misled and so that that would be a sort of a piece of information which would start to be the most obvious and direct link in terms of his own um, activities around particularly his business interests and his, uh, you know, the whole uh, operating idea behind the uh, Russia investigation that's emerging is the idea that Mr. Trump was incented to help the Russians in exchange for getting this Trump Tower uh, Moscow built and the question of how much and to what extent that affected, you know, his um, comportment during the campaign and even the comportment early in his presidency. Had he directed Michael Cohen to lie like that as president, that probably uh, could have been the centerpiece on its own for impeachment, right? So that, so that sort of Twitter sort of went into overdrive on that. And then the Mueller team saw what was happening and saw that there was kind of an enormous pressure that was going to mount just in response to this. Uh, and it said, no, that's not quite accurate. And so it, it, it and that's to its credit. I, I mean, I think that. It's also important to remember, though, how many things have been reported that aren't products of leaks of the Mueller investigation, but are the product of story that can be told through the indictments and through the guilty pleas that are already in place, right? And so that people have linked the the pieces together in that way already. And, you know, where bonafide um, journalistic outlets are reporting on that and covering it very diligently, the Mueller report is not, you know, rising up day-to-day and striking down what these folks are saying or saying, no, it's inaccurate. But on this occasion, they said that what BuzzFeed had, the way they had presented it, wasn't exactly accurate. And, you know, BuzzFeed, I don't think it's not, it's an uncredible source, but it's not the Washington Post, it's not the New York Times, um, and it's not a sort of clutch of other super-trusted um, media sources. Nevertheless, I, I just think the only, it's not a major story to me other than to say that, you know, Bob Mueller's obviously trying to safeguard the integrity of the investigation to prevent the public mood from getting ahead of things in any way, because there's obviously a strong desire to hear what his report has to say, and I, think, I don't think you can read too much into it, but other than to say certainly he hasn't come out and refuted, you know, the many, many, many other uh, stories which we all know um, you know, and we've, we've all heard through the media, but that have been, you know, largely based on his actual um, indictments, which really lay out a theory of the case against Mr. Trump. Just for a brief second, let's assume the BuzzFeed story is true. I assume that would be sort of classic obstruction of justice, no? It really directly um, implicates, um, you know, Mr. Trump and obstruction of justice. But as I said, I th- my sense is that the Mueller investigation is going to turn up all kinds of evidence of obstruction of justice. But, you know, my view as a lawyer is already been obstruction. Let's pinpoint the actual moments where there's been clear obstruction of justice, which has been in plain view, not only of the American public, but of the entire world, right? And so that was, 
you know, when um, Mr. Trump, um, you know, had this meeting with Sergei Kislyak and Igor Larionov, who's the, uh, or Lavrov, sorry, um, not the former Canuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> he had a meeting with them in the Oval Office, you'll remember, right after he had fired Comey, and he said, oh, this, this, is, this relieved a lot of pressure on me, and that was reported not only by the Russian news agencies, but by other... Uh, although there weren't any Americans, of course, in the room, that was widely reported elsewhere, and it wasn't denied by the president that he said that. And then he had this comment to Lester Holt on NBC News as to the reason, you know, that um, that he had fired James Comey. And so he'd been very, in terms of the reasoning behind his firing of James Comey, he'd been sort of very public and forthright in terms of comments that he'd made that were witnessed or out there in the public sphere. And then if you look at the pieces of uh, circumstantial evidence, you start weaving them together, right? I mean, you see, for example, the fact that um, Paul Manafort is brought on at the very moment in the campaign in where they're going to the convention to do this kind of, and does this kind of surreptitious change of the Republican policy on the Ukraine, right? And he's connected then to all of these personalities. You can now see the... Um, the indictments um, of Russian security officials and other um, individuals, and you can see the kind of big picture becoming clear, not through anything that Mr. Mueller says or does, but just through the, or I should say through what he does rather than what he says. But on this question of, you know, directing Michael Cohen to lie to Congress, of course that would be significant. Of course that would be, in the, in the, in the political sense, an obvi obvious evidence of collusion. Again, in the political sense, because collusion itself, as I've said before on your show, is not, uh, strictly speaking, an, a legal offense. It's just, it refers to a family of legal offenses, most of which re revolve around conspiracy. But the political meaning of it is very clear. And, of course, as I've, you know, not to be too lawyerly about it, but, um, you know, the president is ultimately going to be held to a, a standard of political as well as a legal standard, right, in that he's really being overseen by Congress, especially insofar as uh, the Department of Justice takes the position as do many um, legal scholars and judges in the U.S., although certainly not all, there's a debate on this, that the president cannot be subject to criminal prosecution while he's in office, right? So it's really all on Congress to do this. And certainly the idea of collusion as a significant political crime that we can all recognize, then referring to a family um, of other crimes, most of which revolving around conspiracy, could also be the basis for this political case for uh, impeachment. One other matter I wanted to raise with you, and that is this whole thing about this Trump Tower uh, project in Russia, which has been a bit of a focal point in all these twists and turns we've had. Uh, we began with the story from the Trump side of things, that things were, you know, that whole thing fell apart, was not a part of the deal, the entire campaign. We since have had some kind of evidence popping out here and there saying that is not in fact the case. And then Rudy Giuliani, who is apparently part of Mr. Trump's legal team, uh, came out with not one but two different timelines, uh, both of which belie the original statement that the whole thing was dead during the campaign itself. Uh, in fact, he said it went into the the campaign was just on two different timelines depending on which one he, he wants to stick to but uh, how important is that well i mean it's pretty important again i mean i think the role of rudy julian is that he's that he is effectively um you know mr trump's personal counsel he's not white house counsel right he doesn't work for the government he does act for mr trump as a person and he is the one who's willing to basically do whatever Donald Trump says in terms of his legal strategy. So it looks like uh, there's no apparent strategy there, but we'll see. Um, but in any event, what, what matters here on this question is, is again, is that if it suggests a reason for a quid pro quo, right? Remember how um, Donald Trump, and this is funny because Hillary Clinton, of course, had a great tweet this week where she said, 
there is he, you are the puppet. You remember that moment in the debate in 2006 when she said he was a puppet of the Russian government. He'll be a puppet of the Russian government. And Donald Trump is said, no puppet, no puppet. Like that really bothered him, right? And so how, how would he be a puppet? What is this really all about? Well, what it's about is that he wants this, if, if it's true, that he wants this Trump Tower in Russia. And I, I'm laughing because it's like if it's known by his biographers and those who bothered to look that the guys wanted to have a Trump Tower in Moscow since the 80s, right? So and and there was an uptick in this activity and interest around the Trump Tower Moscow just at the time, of course, that he's running and, and launching himself as a candidate um, for president. Um, and so that's where the quid pro quo, and that's at the center, really, of what the Mueller investigation, I think, has been focusing on, or at least I should say they're focusing on a lot of things, but that's the departure point, is was there some kind of relationship there? So by all accounts, you know, those who are expert in how contemporary Russia works, so that even to do something like build the tower, you know, you'd think that would go through a permitting process at the city or something like that. It would be at an arm's length. That's not how things work in Russia. They go directly through Vladimir Putin. So that's what Vladimir. So that's what Donald Trump wants from Vladimir Putin. He wa- he's a business developer. He this is the theory anyway. Always wanted the, um, the 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 tower with his name on it in in Moscow. Okay. And perhaps doesn't even think he's going to win the presidency, right? Or and, he, and if he does, he doesn't care because he's really a, a real estate developer first. He's always shown that was more important to him, right? So that's on one side of it. What does Vladimir Putin want? What Vladimir Putin wants is actually fairly clear, and that's what um, was part of the, that meeting that, at Trump Tower um, um, w- between um, a Russian lawyer and uh, um, the and Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort. What they want is they want the repeal of what's called the Magnitsky Act. And I'm not sure if you're familiar, um, Shane, or if your listeners are familiar with what the Magnitsky Act is. Yeah, I am, but maybe just give it a brief overview. Yeah, and, and there's Magnitsky Acts. There's a Magnitsky Act in Canada, there's one in the United States, and in other jurisdictions as well. And it's named after a guy named Sergei Magnitsky, who was a financial um, person, or I think an accountant, who worked on behalf of Bill Browder, a prominent uh, American um, finance persons turned investigative journalist who was basically who he and Bill Browder and their activities in um, you know post-Soviet Russia's wild um, years of kind of opening up economy and investing and everything like that uncovered in the process of their um, work I guess as financiers as speculative financial capitalists I don't um, they came across what they regarded as sort of unthinkable levels of um, of corruption in the in the Russian government, in in, in effect, allowing really um, enormous quantities of uh, of money to be sort of siphoned off, um, and and um, by an elite group of oligarchs and by uh, by the power structures forming around uh, Vladimir Putin, and the result was when when this uh, uh, Magnitsky, this young Russian banker, sort of sought to be turned humanitarian, sought to blow the whistle on this, he ended up being jailed and uh, tortured and ultimately killed. And Bill Browder returned to the United States and to uh, some other jurisdictions, including Canada, where he lobbied officials to sort of um, create a kind of pinch point to um, uh, freeze uh, investment monies or bank bank um, or assets of certain particular Russian officials who are either um, who are, or, or, or individuals benefiting from 
forms of corruption that were, you know, causing, you know, human rights violations. And so that put an enormous amount of pressure on Vladimir Putin personally and on the oligarchs on whom he basically relies for money. And he basically takes 50 percent of what they make. That was the essential uh, bargain, I think, between uh, Putin and the oligarchs. Again, that's what Bill Browder says anyway, and, and that's his account of it. He's written a lot about it, and he's obviously very personally involved in the story, but he's a reasonably well-respected um, person, and he's, he had this enormous impact. And by all accounts, uh, Vladimir Putin is obsessed with Bill Browder, talks about him at every chance, and talks about him, uh, even people speculate, likely as a subject of conversation between him and Trump. At one of their meetings, it came out after the fact, remember that there was a discussion of whether Mr. Trump would, um, you know, perhaps Mr. Trump, there was, a, there was this reporting that one of the things that was said in the meeting was that Mr. Putin might hand over um, the GRU agents that were, be, that were um, in, in, indicted by the Mueller investigation in connection with the alleged hacking of the 2016 election in exchange for um, Donald Trump sending over Bill Browder. Bill Browder was asked about that. He said, well, thankfully, I'm, I live in the U.K. and I'm not an American citizen anymore, so it's not an issue. But there's, there's a whole complicated backstory on this. It really goes back decades. And um, so the Russia... And Vladimir Putin in particular has a very strong interest in getting that Magnitsky Act reversed. And one of the things that Russia did in order to sort of put pressure on that was, for example, to stop U.S. adoption of Russian babies. And many babies are adopted annually from Russia. So that was the kind of retaliatory action. But, but typically, you know, Putin hasn't had a lot of levers at his fingertips to protect, you know, his own financial interests and those of these oligarchs who are beholden to him from the pressure points created by the Magnitsky Act in the global banking system. And, and that's really what they, they ne- that was always uh, what they kind of wanted. And, that was the, and so it seems to be that that's the quid pro quo that's starting as we look at all of the indictments coming together and some of the um, you know, accounts of, uh, of it that, that seems to be materializing. Okay, uh, last question, Jeffrey, you know, just to sort of depart from the politics, uh, not much, but um, this whole thing about the government shutdown, now the longest yeah. one in U.S. history. I mean, you lived in the U.S. for quite some time. How do you see this playing out as far as, you know, the pressure building to do something, even though it doesn't look like anybody's willing to budge here? Well, I mean, you know, they are a former brinkmanship, and, you know, usually it's sort of all about who's viewed as being the kind of intransient party, and then they sort of wear the politics of it. Again, you know, in this case, Mr. Trump, by his own comments and conduct, you know, even in that office, that meeting with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, of course, the House um, Majority Leader, House Speaker, and the Senate Minority Leader, the leading Democrats, where he said, you know, uh, you know, he basically had the cameras on. They are expecting a closed-door meeting where he basically said he was willing to go to the wall, no, no pun intended, to have the wall built and, and that all funding would be suspended by then. And the Democrats, you know, pushed back on that. Under normal circumstances, you know, there's this pressure for someone to break. Under, uh, under these circumstances, I don't know. I mean, the president is a very stubborn man, obviously, and he's being supported by, you know, Mark Meadows and some of the um, more extremist so-called Tea Party members or Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party. So even though they're no longer, you know, in power, you've got the Democrats, you've got this minority of Republicans really strongly backing the president. And the Democrats, you know, they have justice on their side. I mean, there's no, there's no conceivable argument for, you know, building the wall as a, as a, as a manufactured issue that it is, okay, um, you know, to, to defund the 
the government in the way that's occurring. But I think it could go on quite some time. And the effects are going to be felt more and more, right? Because they're going to be fe- certainly some emergency services, you know, some things are remaining funded, but many, many, many things aren't. And there's going to be people, for example, the last food stamp checks have gone out, right? That that's going to be that's going to have an enormous effect. Individual workers who can't, you know, or who aren't getting paychecks, they'll, they'll get paid after, but they don't know when that'll be. I mean, you think about things like TSA. I mean, the system of government will sort of out of people's duty um, and sort of uh, will stumble on for some time, but eventually it will start creaking and breaking down. And of course, the people who will feel it the most are those most who are most vulnerable and who are most reliant on government services. I mean, if you think of um, you know, things like housing homeless people, right? Where does that come from? Well, a lot of those are things are done by, in the United States, a combination of states and not-for-profit organizations, but they also rely on significant amounts of federal funding, some of which is fairly non-controversial um, and absolutely necessary to the survival of vulnerable people. These things are all going to be now the reality. This is going to get more and more serious with every passing uh, week and month. Jeffrey, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. And I'm sure we're going to have a barrel load of stuff to talk about uh, that's going to build up over the next few days because you just never know what's going to happen hour to hour at this point. You do not. That was lawyer and TRU lecturer Jeffrey Myers discussing the latest twists and turns in the Trump-Russia collusion investigation. And that's it for today's edition of The Woodford Show. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL this time tomorrow. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.